22nd, I think. Yes, July 22nd, 2020. This is WBOK 1230 AM. I am Dr. Adrian. Dr. Maria is not feeling well today, but I have who? Dr. Alana. Dr. Alana. All the way, she flew all the way in, and boy, are her arms tired. Oh, they are. Um, so, this is Education, NOLA Ed, Education for Liberation. I'm happy to be here on a Wednesday. Going up. On a, I'm going up on a Wednesday, not on a Tuesday. So, um, I miss my friend. Where is she? Where is Dr. Maria? I thought she was going to watch us on uh, Facebook Live. She's not feeling well, a little under the weather. Um, but it's not COVID. It could be allergies. It could be. I think I'm having an allergy situation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Nuki, mm-hmm. how are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, I'm all right. I'm tired. I mm-hmm. ran up the stairs. I know. I saw you. <laughs> in my little boot. <laughs> um because somebody, I can't drive, so somebody drove me here, and you know, it's just challenging. Here. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fun though. We got here, we got here. So, um, what are you up to? Just hanging out, <laughs> renovating, renovating life. So, I we're gonna have a, a guest on because we are all, all of us obviously are in the midst of COVID and. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about school reopenings, both the kind of K twelve school K twelve school reopenings, but also universities. So we're going to have a guest um, joining us in a little bit. But you, I was uh, what they call ear hustling, mm-hmm. um, and you were on a webinar mm-hmm. for what? What was your? I webinar? was on a webinar about stroke among COVID-19 patients from Northwestern University Department of Neurosurgery. And so say something about that because we are, you know, so what's interesting is that people were mad at W, uh, the World Health Organization because they were like, they were lying. And and on one hand, while people are saying they're lying, the phrase that gets, uh, that bothers me the most now that, that policymakers and politicians, and politicians mostly, will use to justify their inaction and mm-hmm. lack of decision making is they'll say the situation is fluid mm-hmm. and yet will hold um, health organizations that are, that, you know, provide vital information, hold them to a standard that seems impossible. Um, Bless you, um, because the the information that they they may have had some information in March or January that's mm-hmm. very different now, mm-hmm. and the the webinar that you want kind of points to this kind of fluidity of information. Mm-hmm. So, can you say why this webinar was important, and the information is important, and how it informs us now? Why why is it important to know this? Why would they do a webinar on that? So, you know, every field of medicine has been impacted by COVID-19. And so there were some people who thought initially that, um, and this is inside and outside of the medical and scientific communities, that COVID-19 was just a respiratory illness because the coronaviridis are um, associated with about 15 to 20 percent of the common cold. So coronaviridis are the different yeah, strains. coronavirus, so the, the different yes. viruses. So mm-hmm. we, in medicine, we call them viridis. Okay. <laughs> so the coronaviruses, um, there are multiple different types of coronaviruses that infect humans, and those are associated with the common cold. And so, and then you have the flu that happens every year. So people, the lay public were getting confused. And I would say not necessarily physicians were confused about it, but 
that they might have been conflating along with the lay public um, what it meant to get a coronavirus infection and the severity of it and what it would affect, you know, in terms of organ systems and whatnot. So I think what's been evolving is the understanding that, first of all, this isn't just a normal human coronavirus, right? It's a zoonotic coronavirus. So it's one that includes um, genetic components from bat, right? So we know now that there are components of it that are from another species, another organism. And so because of that, genetically, it doesn't behave the same way as a human coronavirus, which means could mean a lot of things, might mean nothing. We won't know until we know, you know, until we have more data, we know more about its symptoms and signs and the outcomes of infection in different populations. And we have an understanding of what, how those different populations break down. And so, for example, this webinar was about um, how coronavirus has manifested itself in the neurological system. Mm. So the brain, the spinal cord, you know. And so mostly what we've been seeing are strokes. Mm. So patients are having strokes. But there are a myriad of different neurosymptoms associated. So patients who have had, who have been, who have tested positive for Mm COVID-19, but they're actively, so you could, you could be, you could have COVID-19 and be asymptomatic, but these yep. are people who are actively with, with active symptoms of COVID-19 mm-hmm. who are also having strokes. So, yeah, and what was unclear in the beginning is that patients come in with strokes all the time, right? So stroke is something we have comprehensive stroke centers. We have stroke centers of excellence. We have all these different ways to funnel patients in from their home or the field, you know, wherever they're having stroke symptoms into a hospital setting. And then we do these various tests to determine if it's an ischemic stroke, which means there's a blood clot that Mm -hmm. cut off oxygen to something, or it's a hemorrhagic stroke, which means there's a bleed, so like a subarachnoid hemorrhage, so, you know, brain bleed or, you know, aneurysm that ruptured or something like that. And so those are two different types of strokes, but they can have similar effects at the end where you might lose speech or hearing or whatever, but their symptoms are going to be different. So Mm. patients will feel something different depending on which one it is. And so one of the things that this webinar talked about is that they were having these patients come in with stroke symptoms. And they were being identified as having certain types of strokes, large vessel strokes that are amenable to treatment. And then it was discovered in the course of treating them or in the course of them, you know, being in these different hospital systems up in the Midwest that they... um, actually had they were also positive for COVID-19 so initially it was unclear I think um, and it's a story that's emerging Mm -hmm. so it's unclear if the stroke was first and they just happened to be infected and otherwise they would have been asymptomatic and in that case those people were just you know most likely they had um, uh, risk factors for stroke um, or if they were otherwise healthy people who shouldn't have had a stroke, and then they ha- they came in with a stroke, and so and that had to be disentangled. Right. So that's been that's getting pretty well characterized. So it turns that out you could that that having a stroke is a symptom. Yes. Of COVID the coron- So what started out, and so when I started this conversation or this comment, it was about how each field of medicine was kind of trying to figure out what coronavirus, you know, impact how it impacted them. And for the most part, we thought it was just going to be. Primary care physicians, respiratory Mm -hmm. doctors, you know, so, um, you know, pulmonologists in the ICU, we're going to be dealing with it. It turns out that it affects all organ systems in part because it causes inflammation and it causes um, clotting, causes different, you know, coagulation issues. So that's why it ends up up inducing stroke. And, you know, it could be that maybe, you know, some of what we're seeing in the kidneys or the liver or the lungs is actually not just the result of it infecting a cell and then causing damage to that cell or transformation of that cell, but also that it's causing uh, clots. Mm. Wow. Or so regulation issues with the cell. Mm-hmm. So, so if you compound that with comorbidities, mm-hmm. it's really 
it can yeah. be, I mean, it's already yeah. going to be devastating. But it's yeah. even more devastating if you have high blood pressure yeah. and you're, or diabetes and right. you're prone to pulmonary If you're already blood. prone to it. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of this that's um, concerning, right, is that you've got otherwise healthy 30, 40, and 50-year-olds who typically don't stroke unless they have a family history and a strong genetic component or a lifestyle issue or, you know, they were obese as little children and that obesity never abated and then they became diabetic and then they had high blood pressure starting in their 20s. Those people can have strokes in their 30s and 40s because now they're at 20, 30, and 40 years of, of uh, comorbidities, right, of these different underlying health issues. But when you have a 30-year-old runner or a 40-year-old former non-smoker, former athlete, you know, working in a regular job, not high stress, has no other health conditions, coming in with large vessel strokes, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know, carotid disease or some other disease that, you know, causes stroke would be something you'd look for if they were in their 60s, but you wouldn't look for it in a 30-year-old. And so when we were listening to the webinar, you said there's something like, so some of the strokes may present as you being intoxicated. Yeah, so strokes that affect certain parts of your brain will make you look like you're intoxicated. You get what's called ataxia, right? So you're walking funny, your speech might be slurred. Those are all things that are controlled by the cerebellum. And so if you can't, you can't, you know, modify or control um, specific movements that you intend to do. It's called intentional stuff. So, you know, I want to reach for this or I want to walk in this direction. I want to say these words. You can't control those motor movements. And so then you look like you're drunk because that's what alcohol affects. It's mm -hmm. the same. Pathway. So you could be innocently, maybe you'd gone to dinner and mm -hmm. had a glass of wine with a friend and then you're driving home and you've had COVID mm -hmm. and you didn't know. You didn't and now know. your symptoms are, mm -hmm. your symptoms are surfacing. Yep. And, and you, you present with you this. You slump over on the wheel. You're trying to drive and and then you're, you know, next thing you know, you're being tested at the for, roadside for, for a breathalyzer, you know, right. test. And I think it's particularly dangerous, right, for African-Americans or other people who are targeted um, more often for police intervention on the road for even, you know, no infraction, right, or minor infractions like a taillight out. And then to be, um, to have the concern that maybe you're drunk elevates that you know, the awareness of the officer of potential danger, right, when they're on there. So their heightened, you know, awareness is going to maybe translate into other activities like violence or, you know, arresting someone or accusing them of being intoxicated when they're not. Um, and especially, you know, if you have any alcohol in your breath because you had a drink, which, you know, it's shocking here in Louisiana to come here and to find drive through daiquiri stations. Yeah, yeah I mean, so that's what, yeah. So, doesn't happen in Minnesota. Does that happen yeah. in California or New York? Right, right, right. So <laughs> you could be, so for an, a New Orleans, in this context, right, Yeah. in a COVID context, Context, what we may think is somebody, uh, someone is driving intoxicated. Yep. They they could literally be having having a stroke, a stroke that's induced by COVID nineteen. That's induced by COVID nineteen. And then are they going to get tested? Are they? And so they could be jailed. They could be thrown in jail, and, and they're they having just, a large vessel occlusion, and then they're supposedly sleeping it off. And in fact, they're sleeping the sleep of death. Right? Wow. I mean, they really aren't doing well at all, and they needed to have been seen by a provider. And then you know you've got just the general issues within healthcare of our people of different backgrounds, not just people of color, but people who look like they could be a drinker, right? Or who look right. like they could be an alcoholic, but certainly for some people, all African-Americans, all yeah. Asian-Americans, all Latinos look like they could be up to no good. And so even if they were under surveillance by some nurse in the jail or they were taken to an emergency department, are they going to be tested for COVID-19? Is that going to be a suspicion? You know, I've been mm -hmm. surprised at, and New Orleans is a big city, so it may not be the case, but I've been surprised at how many smaller areas 
Um, you know, they weren't even aware, for example, that coughing and fever weren't the only symptoms of COVID-19 right. months right. into the pandemic. Right. They should have known that, but they didn't know. Yeah. So and places, not, I, I was sick because when I hurt my foot, yeah, I went into an ER, and I won't say the hospital because you would think that, but they, so again, as you know, we know that a fever isn't necessarily right. an indicator, and they made me wait. They wouldn't allow me into the hospital until they took my temperature. Right. But... What if I didn't have, right. a, you know? <laughs> My sister-in-law, for example, just got COVID-19. Um, and where she is, they're only, the only thing that they're testing, and this is a, a large city, the only thing they're testing is for fever and cough. Well, she had neither fever nor cough. The only reason that she went in for testing was because someone in her work circle had tested positive, and so they gave the option to everyone to test. And then I think there, there was a time period where they were asking everyone to test. They weren't forcing it. Um, but they were asking you know, everyone to test more vigorously. And then they, um, so she tested and she's positive. Wow. That's scary. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because um, it seems as though we're not, the, so early on uh, in the pandemic. Oh, but I should say with her, yeah. she lost her sense of taste and smell and oh. had headaches. Oh. So those were actually her symptoms. And then she developed a very minor cough that could, she frequently has a cough. So it could have just been related to sinus, you know, postnasal drip. But those are neurologic symptoms, so loss of taste and smell and headache that you mm. can find with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it seems as if the information flow about symptoms isn't mm-hmm. as robust as it was early on. Mm-hmm. That we just, when you think about, like most people get their information from the news, mm-hmm. the the nightly news and the national news, and there isn't a lot of discussion about new symptoms, mm-hmm. um, what to watch out for. Yeah. I think some people know. I I mean, I think it's out in the public domain that temperature isn't necessarily. It is, a, and it's been there since, like, March. And yet, mm-hmm. I, again, we go into buildings, and, and even, um, and we're going to bring Elizabeth, uh, Dr. Jeffers, on. Um, even with the reopening, schools were saying they would take temperatures every day. And it was like, well. And that's helpful, but it's not the only It's index, not the only indicator. You know? yeah. yeah. So um, Dr. Elizabeth Jeffers is going to join us from the University of New Orleans. Um, and she is a professor of education policy um, and leadership. And we're going to chat with her uh, about school reopenings and um, the kind of politics of school reopening um, across the P-20 um, spectrum and uh, uh, kind of what's happening here in New Orleans. And um, I think she's, I don't know if she's on the phone yet. Um, Chaz, is Dr. Jeffers on? We're going to bring Dr. Jeffers on. One thing I wanted to say um, as we're waiting is um, what's been interesting about, um, you mentioned the stuff that's in the public domain and questions about symptoms, is that the CDC and the World Health Organization are credible organizations, right? And a lot of people don't understand the way that science and medicine, you know, unveil or, you know, discover new data and so that can be hard for lay people right yeah. to understand that one week they're saying masks aren't and they necessary. just keep changing their mind right and it, and it really isn't changing your mind it's just new data comes in right. or you adapt especially public health you adapt the public health policy based on what you think people will do okay yeah but the cdc and who are still credible organizations and, and it, all their stuff is available right and it should be changing as they it study be. it more We've learned so much. It was almost daily that we were finding out new information back in March, February, March, and April. Um, Dr. Jeffers? Hi. Hi, everyone. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Fine. Uh, Coming through these dollars. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I uh, I want to make sure that I had your title right. You are at UNO, and you are a professor of education policy and leadership, or is that correct? It's, it's educational leadership, but I teach um, almost all policy and research methods courses. Okay. Yeah. And a native New Orleanian back home from Atlanta. You came yeah. back on home after getting your degree. We're happy to have you back here. Um, and we're going to talk about the school reopenings. I know you work a lot with school leaders, um, mm-hmm. both who are in schools and aspiring, I think, to become school leaders. Correct. Um, and it's the summertime, but you, from the spring on through now, what have you been able to kind of understand about how school leaders understand their role and what where are they getting information about reopening and um, at the building level is different than at the district level but what what um, what have you heard and what do you know well I'll say one thing um, which really struck me in the very beginning because I I'm an advisor to like at least 15 um, doctoral students mm. and and the disparities in terms of and just the graduate students that I work with overall in terms of how people were experiencing COVID-19 and how communities were experiencing COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before the numbers even came out, you know, the disparities. So um, just in terms of who was able to um, work from home mm-hmm. you know, or who had to continue to work out in, in, um, on their job. And so there were major racial disparities going on. Um, and so... Yeah, and in terms of the students I work with, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, mm-hmm. so a lot and of just, they just wanted business to go on as usual, you know, so right? Nothing, nothing stops, nothing slows down, and so yeah, it, as as a professor, you, you have to work with your students, and you know, you, you don't want to fall too far behind. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. But yet at the same time, you're you want to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And consider what people are going through. Yeah. What is what is your sense um, in in New Orleans? I mean, it's decentralized. Um, and uh, I was talking to a colleague um, who uh, has some understanding of the um, the different branches of governance here in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and his feeling was that so so charter schools are autonomous; they have their own boards. Um, right. And uh, they they so they have their own their their own LEA right they're their own school totally. district, and then we have an elected school board in the form of Orleans Parish um, School Board, and then now we have NOLA PS, um, which I'm not I don't really know where NOLA PS comes from relative to <laughs> OPS branding. Yeah, I, I just didn't know. So yeah. so I don't I don't know what they do, but we have NOLA PS with Henderson Lewis who. I understand is hired by the Orleans Parish School Board, but it seems as though there are kind of three entities here at play, and then there's the state board of ed, but that's a separate issue. Um, and that so because schools have autonomy, what is it that Orleans Parish and NOLA PS can do? And what my colleague shared with me is that there actually is when the uh, when RSD left, and there was quote unquote unification, so that the schools were. Su- presumably turned back over to Orleans Parish, except that all of the schools had been chartered um, 
most of the schools have been chartered when Orleans Parish quote unquote got the schools back. Um, that there that there actually is written into policy that Orleans Parish has a um, has uh, he doesn't use this word. This is mine for lack of a better word. Ultimate authority over um, charters, but it doesn't, and that that no. it is the um, that school board members. Um, you know that that is the purview of the school board, but but perhaps school board members haven't been willing to exercise that authority. And um, I didn't know that uh, because they don't behave in that way. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. If you look at the legislation at, at Act ninety one, um, and if you remember, Dr. Bowie was the one who first proposed proposed that all the schools return. Uh, not all the schools, but the schools that had uh, were no, long, no longer deemed failing would go back to um, Orleans Parish um, jurisdiction. And so they were like, you know, and, and I was there and I testified. And um, so Caroline Romer and um, Ben Cleveland, mm. uh, who then became a part of the local school board, uh, and they were like, no, 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 you know. <laughs> and, so, and, and so they came back the next year. And they were like, well, we want to go back our own way. So they had written the school return legislation. Um, and, and it was, yeah, it, was, it basically is that the, the, the Orleans Parish School Board would have, wouldn't have the authority to impede upon their charter autonomy. Mm. Um, so they these were first schools. They remember they were type five yeah. schools. Yeah. The ones that fell under the RSD after Hurricane Katrina, those were type five charters. So those type five charters then became type three B when mm. they came back. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it says the Orleans Parish School Board does not have the authority to impede on the autonomy of these charter schools, which are LEAs, they're their own districts. Um, in terms of contracts, in terms of firing and hiring, in terms of certification, in terms of school start times, in terms of the school calendar. Um, yeah, all of that is left in the hands of the charter management organization. And so, that is written to the law. Now, I'm sure there's, there are other laws, and I'm not an attorney, mm. <laughs> there are other laws that, um, in terms of what your friend might have been talking about. Mm-hmm. So things like that, that should be unconstitutional. You know, it is unconstitutional. So, well, the so we have to have an elected school board because that is within the constitution. But it, but it essentially doesn't function because charters are are autonomous. Mm -hmm. And there, so that raises the question about school reopening because the OPSB had a press conference and talked about, you know, schools would be virtual, but in mm -hmm. some ways that's kind of a moot point because schools are autonomous. So even if they the can school, decide. they can decide what they want to do. Um, and uh, so, so people were all excited about Orleans Parish saying that, you know, whatever, they were going to delay schools until after Labor Day, but it doesn't really matter because schools could do what they want to do. Correct. <laughs> And uh, so what, so the work that you do with principals at what, what is the level of authority or decision-making power that they have when they function as building level leaders? Elizabeth, did I lose um, you? I, I, you caught me by surprise with that. 
I don't think they have much authority. Mm. I think a lot of the, I think, I think, from my understanding is that the CEOs have a lot of power. Mm. And so it's almost just like, Hmm. I don't know about every charter, but it, it almost seems like, yeah, they, they they have this go-to person. You know, it's like it's almost just like, are you another Henderson Lewis? You right. know, um, yeah. So I don't think they. And then they have so many different administrators and so many teams and so many. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I actually mostly work with administrators from uh, suburban parishes from like Central uh-huh. and Jefferson. I do have a few that that are. Um, have worked in the school system here. Mm-hmm. So we learned that schools will start and they'll start in September after Labor Day, which, I mean, I don't know what that really does. As a physician, what do you think? Or as a, as a, as a doctor in training, what do you think? I think that, um, you know, personally, I'm not sending my kid to school. Um, from a public health standpoint, I understand that um, PD, the Academy of Pediatrics has come out and you know made their statement that the safest or best place for children is to be in school or something like that. I'm not going to go against what the Academy says because I'm not a pediatrician, but I think what they're looking at, and there are lots of smart people there looking at the numbers, they're looking at um, you know the available data which shows that children get, when they're infected, they get much more mild disease than adults do. There's no data to indicate that they have a huge excess mortality rate. It's at 0.02%, and that's worldwide. Um, So it's from data that we've seen. Um, And, you know, so there are a lot of really good indicators that going back to school could be safe. Now, what I will say, though, is that the data is extremely limited, and they say that. Mm -hmm. Everyone in public health says that. All the epidemiologists, all the scientists who are really looking at this carefully, whose bread and butter it is to look at viruses and epidemics and pandemics, they're all telling us that the data on everyone is extremely limited, but in particular children and particular children under the age of 10. So I think that what it is, is, you know, is potentially a grand experiment, and we're going to find out that schools are very much like prisons and they're very much like nursing homes and they're very much like, you know, crowded office spaces and other indoor spaces. I mean, we can't even go to church and sing out loud from a choir without potentially spreading the virus. Now, little bodies produce smaller plumes of viral particles, but children are virtual cesspools of germs and they're not in school they're not in schools by themselves right they're They're in in schools with adults so even if they don't get sick they are carriers and i would what i would say about the death toll and you and i talked about this if you look at 0.02 percent unless my math is off if you take a hundred thousand children in the orleans parish which i know it may not be that high of a number you're looking at 20 deaths and that's under the best case scenario where none of those children have underlying health conditions in some of the studies where children had underlying health conditions I think the death rate was more like several percentage points. So it could be 2 to 5%. It might have been 10% or even 25% and of the deaths. Underlying conditions be, could mean, be asthma, asthma obesity, mm-hmm. right? Diabetes. diabetes. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. They don't have the data. Mm-hmm. They don't. So that's where the experiment comes in. Yep. And when we started to see that uh, Houston was going to be online, California was going to be online, all of these, um, Memphis was talking about being online, and, you know, there's a huge demand from the community, and particularly Dr. Wyatt's, um, you know, live speeches, which, you know, people were um, putting everywhere, you know, but, it, you know, about how it should go online for these reasons. But 
it's like they were using New Orleans as as guinea pigs. Again, yep, yet again. And I so mean that that to get that data because they don't have it. And yep. so is this we're, this is the experiment for the rest of the world. And that's what really that that racism is yep. what really yeah. Yeah. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Elizabeth, you're staying with us, right? Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back. This is WBOK, twelve thirty a.m. I am Dr. Adrian and Dr. Alana. We are <laughs> Nola Ed Education for Liberation. We'll be right back. Thanks. Join us Thursdays at 1130 a.m. on the Neutral Ground with New Orleans East Hospital. We'll be discussing COVID-19, hospital services, the virtual care program, and other issues surrounding health disparities in the African-American community. Tune in. Here on the Neutral Ground. That's every Thursday at 1130 a.m. with New Orleans East Hospital on WBOK 1230 a.m. What New Orleans is talking about. Did you hear the news? Education for Liberation has a brand new time. Join me, Dr. Adrian, and Dr. Maria every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Same substance, same impact, just a new time. So join the conversation on Education for Liberation every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Big plays, big games. Hi, this is Reggie Flood. Join me for the Big Time Sports Show, Monday through Friday, 6 to 8 p.m. on WBOK, 1230 a.m., what New Orleans is talking about. WBOK, 1230 a.m., New Orleans, an equity media station. Speaking truth. I'm the truth. To power. WBOK, 1230 a.m., what New Orleans is talking about. about. The following program is a paid program that doesn't necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the staff, management, and advertisers of WBOK. All right, all right, all right. This is WBOK 1230 AM. I am Dr. Adrian. Dr. Alana. <laughs> and we are No Ed Education for the It is Wednesday, July 22nd, um, 734 PM. And I have Dr. Elizabeth Jeffers on the phone on the line. I was trying to get my, my friend Maria Harmon to join us from Step Up Louisiana because um, we're talking about school reopenings and the politics of it, the fear of opening school, reopening schools um, physically because schools didn't close. It's just that kids didn't go into the building. And um, the, uh, hey, Chadrick, um, the, the schools didn't close. It's just kids didn't go into the building. And so now we're talking about school starting again mm-hmm. and where will children go. So, um, Elizabeth, we were uh, discussing kind of the announcement in New Orleans that, that Henderson Lewis made. That, and from my opinion, it doesn't really matter what, what OPSB says because charter schools can do what they want to do as per the case that Sci High 
Um, so Sci High is a charter school, a science um, school here, and high school, and they were already they had already decided that they would be virtual mm-hmm. uh, before the school board made the decision, um, and everyone was kind of re- waiting. It was hard to kind of decide mm-hmm. for family members, community folk, um, what the school year was going to be like. Um, but Elizabeth. Are you still there? Yeah. I'm okay. Still <laughs> so, what do you think are what's what do you think is motivating the um, the push to reopen schools in New Orleans? What is your what are your thoughts on that? Why 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 do you think uh, Ed reformers are so um, animated around reopening schools and having kids in the school? Well, it comes down to the money. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just looking through these PPP. Um, the payroll uh, protection, yeah, um, loans uh, or grants, um, yeah, right, major grants, right. And say something so, about that. What 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 are you? What it was a PPP loan? Why is that relevant to um, our discussion about charter schools and reopening? Well, yeah, because they the the schools received their um, funding through the uh, CARES Act which is sent to all the public schools. Um, and the governor has some additional funding that they can apply for. Um, and they also got their minimum foundation program, MFP money uh, per child. What is that? From the state, from mm-hmm. the local taxes, and from the federal right, Title I. Yep. And and so you got all of this. So you didn't have to pay electricity. You didn't um, have to pay water bill. Water bill, you know. And and from my understanding, and, and there were a lot of disparities in terms of how children were being educated. I mean, mm-hmm. I did hear about that. Some some schools were just dropping off workbooks, you know. Wow. And so, yeah, you got all of that, and then these charter schools were able to apply for the uh, small business administration uh, payroll protection. Um, right. The um, lobby, the lobby, the national charter lobby was able to go to the feds and say, set aside some of this payroll protection money. For charter schools, and is it a loan or is it a grant? From my understanding, it's initially a loan, but then if you meet certain things, you meet certain standards, then it yeah, it's a grant. And they and so it was first come first serve. It wasn't that every charter school that applied would get money. It was just whoever got there first, and they would get. I don't even know how they determined the amount that each school would well, get. I would tell you. I have it right here. <laughs> She's like, I know, because I'm doing the research. <laughs> no, I love my Excel sheets. <laughs> but <laughs> collegiate academy is five to ten thousand. Oh. Not ten thousand. What am I talking about? I five what? to ten million. What? First line, five to ten million. Algiers Charter School, two to five million. Crescent yeah. City Schools, two to five million. Wow. Um, can I just make a comment about the experiment aspect of this? Yeah. So what I think is interesting, we started talking about it before. So if you do the numbers, you have anywhere from 10 to 20 students who could die up to, if that's 0.02% of 100,000 students, or if it's 0.2%, you know, you add an order of magnitude, it's 200, you know, 100 to 200, and then you get to, you know, 2,000, you get whatever. Now, these are excess deaths on top of 
what children already die of. And children don't generally die. Mm. So, And some of the things that African-American children are dying of are things like asthma, mm-hmm. complications of, you know, other illnesses that are related to poverty potentially or stress or violence, you know, so there might be gang or drug violence. But those aren't the only reasons that children die. And they're certainly not the only reasons that African-American children die. But in general, children just don't really die. Mm. I mean, it's not something that we ex- that we tolerate or expect in a first world country. Right. So when you start talking about excess deaths, Right. Then you have to weigh that against what would be equally as bad. And, you know, as Andrew Cuomo said, you know, our favorite quote, there's nothing worse than death. There's nothing worse. Right. And especially for a child. So I've lost children. You know, I've had to bury babies. And it's probably one of the worst things that can ever happen in your life. Right. And those were pregnancy related losses. I can't imagine losing a toddler, a five year old, a 10 year old, a 12 year old who you've had for longer. So what we're asking parents to do is essentially participate in a grand public health experiment that they're not getting informed consent for. And we're asking them to do it without any formal education about the risks and the benefits. And then essentially, you know, this is a bean counter thing, right? So some accounting person or group of people have said that it, we're going to lose this amount of money in terms of revenue from these grants or the money, you know, that we get from sale of books or sale of uniforms or whatever the, you know, financial incentives are. And we're going to weigh that against the excess deaths from COVID-19. And what we find is that the excess deaths from COVID-19 are not as worth it to us as a loss in revenue. That's essentially what's being said. what they're saying. And the other question is, if those children are at home, because the argument's being made that if the kids are at home, they're going to be dying of other things, violence, um, neglect, Mm -hmm. starvation, whatever, right? And my question is we as a society in the United States are saying that kids are worth so little that when they're at home, we're going to let them die of violence and neglect and other things of poverty and domestic abuse and other things like that. Or, I mean, really, that's what we're weighing it against. So kids are going to have excess deaths because we don't have social workers, because right. we know that they're at risk and there's no way to do surveillance when they're at home. What right, do you do right. with zero to five-year-olds who are not right. in the system anyway? Right, right. You let them die. And that's what happens. That's actually the highest mortality rate For among children. children under zero to five years old is homicide, mm. right? So if kids are being killed already at home when they're not being surveilled, I understand then the push to put them in school. But really, is that the case in other countries around the world? Or is it that because we're in first world countries, kids don't die of infectious diseases anymore, accidents as much, so they're only dying of, you know, um, being killed by their parents. And so then that can rise as a cause of death kind of artificially and look alarming, even though really it's just that kids aren't dying of other things like accidents and infectious diseases. So then my question is, why aren't we focused then on the things that are causing kids to die? Right, 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 <laughs> we right, should right, be looking right. at dealing with right. these family things and supporting families. If that, if that is a if that's credible the case, threat. Right? But I think it becomes a, an argument yep. because uh, for the point that Elizabeth raises is that this is about the bottom line. Yep. We have a loan that we took out yep. that's going to come due if we can't show that whatever, whatever it is. If we can't put black bodies in chairs in the yep. school to yep. bring more money out of them. Than, than we have before. And I would say, you know, if I were a parent in the Orleans Parish or anywhere in the state of Louisiana, I would be saying, okay, well, give me my informed consent. Yeah. And then let's talk about whose kids right. are, we're willing to let die. Right. And that's just death, right? right? That's not long-term harm from infection with the virus that we at the present moment don't know what that harm is for children. We, we know in adults that we can look at 20% decreased lung capacity, decreased heart function over a lifetime. But we don't even know that because it's six months old. Yeah. The, the reason a lot of this, this really puts us on the edge in terms of uh, me being a, a former New Orleans public school teacher during Katrina in um, teaching here under the recovery school district, which was an experiment. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and there were a lot of casualties and a yeah. lot of 
young people yeah. lost their lives, yeah. and and they did not have to. Yeah. But you created conditions that were abominable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that, yeah. So it, the experiment is, is, yeah. So we've seen some of the repercussions of dehuman, dehumanizing, right. subhuman. To, you know, and to lose so, a child for right. a community is devastating. Yeah. Right? You're but taking away their future. And your point mm-hmm. is that to say to parents when you bring them to school, mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're essentially, your child may be the one that dies. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to sign them up for that? Your asthmatic kid may end up in the ICU. They may recover, but they might have a stroke. And you know what's even more insidious? And this is how we know that 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 the charter school lobby knows and charter school CEOs. Maybe the building level pres- uh, principals don't know this mm-hmm. or the building level le- leadership, but certainly the, the network leaders know this because the um, charter, the, the attorneys for the charter school lobbied right. to get waivers so yep. that they yep. couldn't be sued for yep. wrongful death. Right. If someone contracted COVID while they were at school, yep. that's how sick and yep. depraved well, these people are. Because it's a calculation. Yes. That's written. The governor signed it. Yeah, I I remember Maria. And Maria's on there. Hey, Maria, I was trying to bring you on camera um, to talk about what is it? HB what? Maria. Maria was citing this. Maria Harmon, um, who is one of the co-EDs. She's on Facebook Live. Um, The 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 law that passed in Louisiana that allowed the um, that allowed the charter schools to get this lobby, uh, to get this waiver so that mm-hmm. both faculty and families would not well, be able to sue, right? It, apply, it applies to higher education as well, public, non-public, to charter schools, mm-hmm. um, uh, governance organi- uh, authorities, okay. um, it's, it, right, and then officers, employees, and agents should, shall not be held liable for any civil damage for injury or death resulting from or related to actual or alleged exposure to COVID-19. Alleged, and specifically. And so, Maria, thank you so much. It's H, it, was, it was House Bill 59 that is now Act 9. Hmm. And yes, Chadrick, yes, that's how you know that. Yes, absolutely, because this is not about children. Mm-hmm. This is about profit. It's about some adults making a profit. Mm-hmm. Some adults, because mm-hmm. it's not all adults. Mm-hmm. It's about some adults being shielded from liability and risk, but not all adults being shielded from risk of COVID nineteen. Yeah, and, and go, I, go ahead. I had pulled up. They had a um, state advisory board, and it was like Caroline Romer. It was some of the same people, architects of the Ed Reform, right? Who yeah. were mm-hmm. in terms of the advisory board for returning to school mm-hmm. during COVID nineteen. That's insanity. So. It's pure insanity. And it's, um, uh, I was saying, we, we, we held a town hall. And um, Maria, heads up, you'll be getting an email. Um, thinking about how we're kind of crafting, what are the demands that we can make now as a community um, uh, for the leadership from the governor, the legislature, on down to uh, the Bessie board and the local education, what I like to call education apparatus, because there are essentially three branches of governance in <laughs> in New Orleans around education. Um, what are the demands that we can make of them in this in this particular context? And to go back to our original kind of line of conversation is that somehow they believe that after Labor Day is magical, right. and that we can go back into buildings, and that. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know what they think will happen between now. We even Fauci. I mean, Dr. Fauci has said we will not even have a vaccine mm-hmm. by Labor Day. No. 
And if we do, do you want to test it on your children who potentially have asthma and other comorbidities that are manageable barely now? Barely now. I mean, that's phase four testing. And you want to test it in children, but do you want to test it on your children? On your children. Exactly. And and test it against the virus. It's one thing to get the vaccine and to hope for the best and to try to prevent the spread, which is what we do with pandemics. We don't allow the virus to spread because it mutates. As it enters people, it mutates because humans are its host. It has to enter the cell in order to be not replicated properly to mutate so we want to let kids go out and just say well you know i'm really hoping for that vaccine to be effective and i want to find out how long it's effective and if it you know is effective against the new mutation i'm not putting my kid in that situation it's some children yep 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 and the presumption is even okay so let's say best case scenario that they do go back into buildings and we have all the best sanitizing materials mm-hmm. and protocols. And there are, um, I was talking to one um, parent today who's at another, um, uh, whose, whose children go to a, a network, I won't say the network, but that um, their initial plan before the district announced the virtual learning, that their plan was to have 25, this was their COVID-19 plan. They would, st- they would only have 25 children in a classroom. How can you possibly socially distance well, in a classroom? That was what the recommendation was from the superintendent. That's insanity. Completely political and yep. ascientific. Yeah, it is. And does it talk about sanitizing the air? Because I don't care about it on surfaces. I mean, sure, that's a concern, and it's a legitimate concern. What I'm really mm-hmm. concerned about it is in the air. Because now we know, right? It's, As it, we've learned, we've, exactly. the, the evidence that we have now is that it aerosolizes yeah it aerosolizes there's good credible evidence at the very least it's droplets and we know that kids walk around secreting droplets from every part of their face right <laughs> all the time all the time Sneezing, so unless coughing, you're yelling. going to encase children in yep. uh, plexiglass mm-hmm. which and you know so so people have i've heard people talk about well they're doing this in china we don't have that kind of no. culture we don't have that kind of we are not socialized to it for the most part even though you know here in New Orleans, kids get punished for being children, right. um, and we value the exuberance of children. Right? We mm-hmm. we value that joy. That's what we say. Except for certain kinds of children, we do value that, but we don't really. So we kind of punish them for that. But but our school, unless we you know will have kids walk and sit in plexiglass bubbles, it's just not possible to contain. They're just not developmentally capable. It, yeah, it doesn't make, yeah. How are you going to do that? And the plan was to have kids eat in the room. So if I were a teacher, you know, I am potentially, you know, again, every kid is a vector. They go home to people. Who are vectors. Who, and, and, and the children in New Orleans, their families work in restaurants, mm-hmm. in grocery stores. Frontline workers. They're frontline workers. They work in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so the kids are... You know, they are bringing this, and a teacher is exposed to this. For six eight, to eight hours a day? Yes. In a yeah. small room with 25 bodies? Yeah. That's not poor air not circulation? Well, they're not well ventilated. And, and yeah. that was the plan, I think, for pre-K through four. And I even saw one of the charter networks was going to have, like, pre-K through six. Uh, because it's only a recommendation. That's all they can legally do. Um, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's what they had planned to do until... People started organizing and speaking out, um, and particularly Dr. Wyatt and what the union was doing with Mm -hmm. the town hall. Right. And so that was what forced them to... to say we're going to go online. But they had no, they had, um, 
at Maria saying there's no that you, you can't properly socially distance in the classrooms and the recommendations from the state superintendent Cade Brumley said the size of the classroom is irrespective to the amount of students to fit in the classroom, which makes no sense to social distance, which means you will inherently be violating the CDC. Exactly. Um, but there was um, responsible. Yeah. And there but there was no. So when they did the press conference, it was kind of it was reactionary. Right? We're going to go virtual right. and, until September. And then people ask, well, what about teachers who have children? Mm hmm. Well, because the, the so Henderson Lewis said, um, yes, teachers will have to go to work and they will they will be able to, um, you know, they will be able to get deliver instruction um, in their classrooms. The classroom, and, right. and so people are like, well, what if they have children? Oh, well, they'll they'll have you can consult with the school on he that. He couldn't answer anything. He just all he kept saying was refer to your charter school leader. Refer, you know, which raises the question about governance again. Right. So what can we expect? What what can what are what can they hold charter schools accountable to? Um, and what they and and what can't they hold them accountable to? And when uh, I think it was a reporter asked, uh, what if a teacher gets ill mm -hmm. um, at school mm -hmm. and they have to leave school? What happens? Do they have to take school day? Do they have to take days off? Are they um, will they give will they be given extra days off from work? Do they have to use their own personal time? Um, they need to consult their HR, blah, 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 blah. So there are no concessions made at any um, kind of governance level for potential issues that teachers right. may face. So it just seems no oversight. No, no, no oversight. My cousin Devin, hey Devin, is in Hawaii, and he was saying they're dealing with the same, a lot of the same issues mm -hmm. um, in Hawaii. And this, I mean, you know, this is a national issue, um, and we have no, no guidance, no national leadership except no. the CDC, which has been asked to amend its guidelines for school reopenings to 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 fit with the kind right. of political and the silencing of Dr. Fauci and the attacks on him and his credibility. Dr. Burke's not stepping up to the plate. Um, you know, it's a mess all the way around. Yeah. And, and Chadrick, uh, Chadrick, who used to teach at a KIPP school, Ch Chadrick said, who's going to cover the classes right. in schools where there is a culture? So in New Orleans, because the schools are balkanized and there isn't a, a central system, each school has their own way of doing substitutes. Mm -hmm. So in schools mm -hmm. that don't have the kind of robust budgets and even schools that have robust budgets, but schools that can't afford to get subs, they have teachers take over those classes. Um, so how so that's a great question, Chadrick, because if you are one, if you are supposedly social distancing, so what some schools do, if a teacher calls in late, they just split up her class. Mm -hmm. So if a class is at the maximum of 25 and you're splitting up a class, where do those children go? And where are you going to get? Right. Yeah. Where are you going to get a sub? You know, so and nobody even I mean, it's not and a difficult what fix. Go ahead. I'm sorry. School bus. The school right. buses. Oh, and somebody asked about that. They asked about school buses. <laughs> he just had no answers because he hadn't thought about it. It was very reactionary. That's it was it was a me. horrible. Uh, well, because part of this, right, is the notion that it doesn't affect children. And, you know, you have people running around saying no children in the entire world under the age of 10 have died. Children don't get the disease. Children get the disease, but they don't pass it to adults as if there's some magical thing about children. Children are just healthier, right. and they're just smaller, right. and they probably don't tell you when they have a headache, because if you're they under 10, know. you might yeah. not even know what a headache, headache is. is. Right. They don't have the... One, uh, 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 a neurosurgeon actually said to me, he was a, um, I don't know, he he was a onco oncology neurosurgeon. Neuro-oncologist, neuro yeah. Neuro-oncologist. So he said, he, and he was pediatric, and he said he liked working with children, because children don't know what it means to be sick. Right. 
They don't. They don't understand sick. They can have massive tumors, and they're looking at you trying to play with you. I had a little right. seven-year-old flirt with me after we removed a massive tumor from his brain, and he woke up and tried to talk to me. Right. <laughs> Telling hey, me I was pretty. Doing? Oh, yeah. Um, he just popped right up. Because <laughs> they don't know. And he was on his head. <laughs> so if they don't have taste, they don't know that they don't yep. have taste. They don't know. They haven't lived enough. Mm-hmm. They don't know enough to compare it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. I want to say something about the experiment again. And yes. It's something you sent me, um, Adrian. Yes. About these pods. Mm-hmm. And so you have these, you know, uh, white middle class, upper middle class people who are going to be, you know, so they give you the option of doing online learning. Yeah. And so these parents are going to have their children at home and they're going to be having these little pods, these little groups where they, yes. you know, <laughs> have teachers come to their house. Isn't that something? To their house. Wow. And so who ends up, you look at who they're experimenting on and yeah. that's when, yeah. 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 Things yeah. become very clear. Yeah. The bullying, the requirements for uniforms, all these different things. It's just a form of control to me. Yeah. But I want to say, so in St. Paul, when they initially, so Alana lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. When they initially closed schools, you all got, what do they do to oh, support They this? gave us um, food. So, so they we, sent food boxes. You could either pick it up at a place or you get it delivered to your house or you could go somewhere else. And they came along the bus route. So you could just walk down to your regular bus was route. Was it a good food box of food? Or crappy food? It was like, um, whatever, a sandwich. Kizashi was excited. It was like sandwich meat. We only got it like once or twice, yeah. but it was carrot, sandwich meat, a little bit of dairy, I think like milk every day. It was enough for five days every week and snacks. Um, and then we got, and breakfast. So it was breakfast and lunch provided five days a week. And um, and it was no questions asked. So you could just come and get it. And then if you were specifically on a list, they would deliver it to your house if you had disabilities or you had you know transportation issues. And then um, when they decided to go virtual, they gave every child a, an, a, an iPad. And it was fully loaded with all kinds of educational tools and curriculum. And then they gave instructions. And then the teachers were available. I think the teachers worked pretty hard at it. Mm-hmm. And then since then, they've been sending out surveys probably once every month, every six weeks, something like that, about readiness to return to school, questions about returning to school. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My um, cousin-in-law, my cousin's wife, is a teacher. And so I know they're having their challenges. And um, uh, Devin was saying that the schools there seems, it appears that they don't have a real plan there. I mean, no, and, and I just don't Why understand. would anyone have a plan? <laughs> it's a pandemic. It's unprecedented. Right. right. But at least some thinking about what school could look like, right. right? You've had since March. But what's even interesting, and Elizabeth and I were talking about this, of all places it should be prepared for uh, a, a massively dis, dis, um, disruptive disaster. Should be New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You would think. Mm-hmm. And they just had no freaking idea. They have no idea on how to deliver education in, in a remote context in in any you know in a situ in a remote context you would I mean it's like all these questions about poverty and excess deaths from suicide or violence at home those were questions that were asked and answered supposedly during Katrina we know that there was an excess of sexual violence against children who were at home due to the due to the results of Katrina whether it was job loss or displacement or whatever so some of those questions should have already been dealt with within the social safety net of the state no because the state what the state has done because we live in a republican controlled state um, and have for you know a long time is that we've allowed uh, the we've allowed uh, the state to absolve their responsibility by privatizing everything right I was and, and pseudo pseudo privatizing so with 
uh, nonprofit organizations that will pick up and provide the services that supposedly the state is going to, but no one knows because people make exorbitant salaries. So what actually gets delivered to the person, to the child, to the child, or the families, we don't know. Yeah. Um, On on that happy note. On that happy and positive note. But thank you, Dr. Jeffers, for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. Dixon. You're you welcome. may be here next week, huh? Maybe. Maybe. $28 tickets on Spirit. All right. On with Spirit. all the virus you can breathe in. <laughs> elbow to elbow oh, with your fellow. I do want to talk to you about writers. this next week. This <laughs> is W. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. <laughs> this is care. WBOK yep. 1230 AM. I am Dr. Adrian. Dr. Alana. And we are NOLA Ed Education for Liberation. We will be back next week. Y'all stay safe. Wear your mask. Mask up, as they say. Wash your hands. Stay six feet away or stay in your house. You don't have to go anywhere and be around them people. Be safe. Bye-bye.